Lord Jesus, it's before the love of God that we bow our hearts and minds right now. We humble ourselves as though those who know we need to hear from you. We're desperate to hear from you. Our souls cry out and long as a pant dance, uh, pant, uh, as a deer pants for water in a desert. Would you come and parch our thirst? Would you come and speak to our hungry th- souls? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you, friends, again for leading us in worship. That was beautiful. We appreciate it. Well, my name is George. Again, it's very nice to see you. Uh, Our sermon series this fall, early fall, is called Promises. And let me just take a moment to say why I think this is important. Um, A gift card in your sock drawer is nothing but a piece of plastic until you take it out and use it with a friend on a night on the town. Right? In the same way, a divine promise is nothing but an ancient text in an old book until you take it out, give yourself to it, and allow it to shape a life. This is why it's so important to know what's in your sock drawer. No, what God has promised us, right? You got to know these promises. What has he promised you? What has he promised me? So this fall, we're digging in, particularly some of the Old Testament promises together, knowing that our lives are full of broken promises. But this is not about our promises to God or to each other. This is about God's promise to us. And God has never made a promise that he doesn't keep. So today, we're going to look at a promise that's made to us, but it's not actually primarily about us. It's a promise that's about this planet, that thing underneath your feet. So I want to invite you to open up your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 12 through 13. Uh, Crack it up in the middle, you hit Psalms and then go right, you'll eventually end up at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 12 and 13. I'd love for you to pull out a Bible today. We're going to do a little bit of Bible digging and look uh, more deeply at several passages of Scripture. If you're opening up the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, page 598 is where you'll find Isaiah 55, 12 and 13. And if you're able, let's stand together. Let's read this thing aloud together. We're going to find a great promise in here. We're going to say it back to the one who, who makes it to us. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word at Isaiah 55, verse 12 through 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall be to the Lord for a memorial for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. And that's a promise. If I could be just a little bit personal with you this morning, I'd love to share with you why I chose this particular text. The truth is that nothing can push me faster into a very dark place right now than news about our planet. It seems so devastatingly bad and only bound to get worse. Global warming, plastic pollution. You you know there's an island of plastic the size of Texas in the Pacific right now. 
ocean acidification, deforestation, biodiversity loss. Do you know that it only took 45 years recently to lose 68% of the planet's animal population? Agricultural damage, air pollution, super viruses. Houston, we have a problem. And it seems to me like we're hurtling towards a major crisis, or maybe we're already in a major crisis, or maybe the major crisis has actually already happened and now we're inexorably drawn towards disaster. And I think about people around the world who are vulnerable, living in relatively inhospitable places that will support less and less life in the future. I think about your children, our children, and their children's children. What will life be like? And it gets to me. I start feeling anxious. I start feeling depressed. Nothing can rob me of my joy or hope faster than news about this planet. It just wakes me up in the night. And I come to this text and I think it probably, probably should have been read, you know, if Isaiah really knew uh, how history would unfold, it, it would read something like this. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into flame. <laughs> right? Yeah. I think maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. And then I come to this text and I go, wait a minute. If I believe anything about Jesus, I might as well believe everything about Jesus. And here's this great promise. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. Wow. Now that's a promise. God gave his prophets promises. And he did it oftentimes across multiple time horizons. Picture two mountain ranges. From the front, they look like one. Turn sideways and you see there's a vast distance of space and in the case of prophecy, in time. Multiple horizons. When we think of this promise, on the one hand, it's a promise for the exiles. It's promised for the restoration of a people. And it came through a man named Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. And God gave a word to Isaiah. And Isaiah said, hey, we we better uh, turn back to our God. If we turn away from him, our nation will be destroyed. Our land will be devastated and will be taken away as captives. He says, in essence, and the language of verse 12 is exile language. You will go out, meaning from Babylon. You will be led back, meaning to Jerusalem. This is verse 12. I'm just adding Babylon and Jerusalem because that's the way it would have been heard at the time of the exile. You'll go out in joy because you can go home now and you'll be led back in peace because here you can experience shalom finally back in Jerusalem. And and the watching environment, the the mountains, the trees, there'll be music and dancing and celebration and they're going to join it. Mountains will be singing, trees will be clapping. Now God kept his promise to Israel through Isaiah In the 6th century, a couple hundred years later, the exiles did return to Jerusalem. But there was more that God had promised through Isaiah than actually happened at that time. Yes, celebration, we're home back in Jerusalem. But we didn't see this full restoration. We didn't see mountains singing, trees clapping. And of course, that is metaphorical language. But we didn't see the cypress replacing the thorn, the myrtle replacing the briar. So we kind of understand that these prophecies, these promises are given across two horizons. On the one hand, there was an immediate promise for exiles, restoration of people. On the other hand, there's a, a, a promise for the earth, the restoration of a planet. 
The promise that God would one day restore the natural order from its own sort of ecological exile, that he would renew and restore all things. It seems that when you read Isaiah as a whole, that the Spirit of God was pressing this upon Isaiah and he didn't know what to do with it, but he faithfully recorded it in his scripture. So if you just run through some of the texts of Isaiah, we see a broader picture of, of, of an ecological uh, restoration. So chapter 11, the leopard shall lie down one day with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together. Chapter 11, also the nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, a snake. Chapter 35, the desert shall rejoice and bloom like the crocus. Chapter 44, break forth, O singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it sing, he says. Chapter 65, for I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth, something that Jesus talked about. Chapter 65, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. So when we read verse 12 here, chapter 55, in the context of the wider work of Isaiah, what we see, this isn't just a promise for the past, this is a promise that's yet to come, be fulfilled. This isn't just a promise for political exile, this is a promise for environmental exile, for the whole planet. See, the mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. Oh, I, I, I so look forward to that day. Can you just imagine it? See, for me, there's something in this promise that makes Christianity intellectually credible, attractive, and oddly credible. Let me explain that. I remember as a young man killing a bee, and you'll forgive me for this. I was in a, on a 10-day backcountry expedition. We were hiking, and ahead of us on the path, I saw this big bee, and I had my hiking boots, and I stomped on it, thinking I was protecting everyone behind me from getting stung. Well... The guy who was immediately behind me um, had a different view of that. He actually was one of the guides on, the, on this uh, adventure. And he was very nice about it. He said, um, George, hey, can we, can we talk about, I mean, I bragged to him, hey, I killed a bee. He was like, well, let, let's think about that for just a second, can we? God made you, right? Yeah. And God made the bee. Oh. God loves you and God loves the bee. Yeah. That's right. And, and George, did you know that the bees actually play a really important role in the wilderness? No, I didn't. And you play a really important role in the life of the bee. Uh, now, he, as I said, he was very kind, but all of a sudden I'm feeling horrible about this whole thing. Right? I just killed a bee. Turns out the, the uh, outfit that had, uh, was supporting this hiking trip Actually, it was a group of people that had what I would call a creation theology. Creation theology. And they explained to us so over the course of the trip that earth is not just a resource to consume, but it's actually a trust to care for. And that God has put us, human beings, here to care for it. Now, this is what the scriptures teach us. And I do want to jump around a little bit. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, you see in Genesis 1, there we're told that you and I are made like God to rule with God within the creation, vice regents, rulers. Genesis 2, though, the second chapter tells us how we are to rule. So let's look at Genesis 2 together. Would you open a Bible or navigate over on your phone to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15? We want to look at this. Uh, Verse 15 says, the Lord, this is before the woman, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, what's it say? To till it 
and keep it. To till it and keep it. Now, those two words are important. The word that's translated till, the Hebrew word for that, oftentimes is translated work, or you might see in your translation, cultivate. And the core meaning of that word is serve. It really means serve. It's the word for servants, serving. It's the same word that the Old Testament uses, say, in Deuteronomy, where it says we are to love and serve the Lord with our whole heart. You're to serve the ground, and you're to serve the Lord. Serve. That word keep that's there, the Hebrew there means to keep something safe with care, protection, watchfulness. It's the same ordinary word that's used of shepherds when they keep their sheep. They, they, they watch over them. They protect them. They care for them. Same word that's used for an armed guard who's protecting something valuable. Care. Serve and care. So that B was the first time I really realized in my life that, that God had put me into this creation with a purpose, that I was in a three-ray relationship between, with that B, me, the B, and God. There's a kind of a triangle there. And then I had a responsibility. I had an ethical obligation, not just to the B, but to the whole natural order, to serve and care, to cultivate and protect. And later on in life, when I, actually when I was in college and I was investigating the claims of Jesus Christ and this thing they called the gospel, I remembered back to my time with this hike and this group of people who had this creation theology. And it's one big thing that gave Christianity credibility for me. I mean, I'm really old, and this is a long time ago before people were talking about the environment. But here were a group of Christians who were reading this book, and they were talking about the ecology and our responsibilities to it. It seemed like, now that I look back at it, that they were addressing what has become our most pressing existential crisis in a book that was thousands of years old. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. Now, whether you take this in or not, I don't know. But I think it might depend on whether you have a thick or a thin view of life. And I don't know. I want you to consider this. You tell me. Do you have a thick or thin view of life? What I mean by this, and I'll break this up. The thin view of life actually has two different versions. There's a secular version and there's a religious version. The thin view of life. The secular version of the thin view of life says, you know, it's the physical world that, that really matters. It's all that matters. I mean, if there is a spiritual world, if there's a God or gods, I don't know, they're distant, they're uninvolved. What really matters is the physical world. I'm a physical being, we have a physical problem, and we need a physical solution. That's the thin secular view of life. It's problematic, though. Um, and the first problem is that I don't think it gives adequate account of our response to natural beauty. I don't know about you, but when I see the mountains, when I see orchids, when I see nebulas, like through the James Webb space, these photographs that we see, there is inside of me an irrepressible sense of awe and transcendence. I don't know if everybody experiences that, but I think it's fairly common. That calls me to a thicker view. Another problem with the thin view, the secular view, is that it's not working. Not against our environmental challenges. I mean, as far as I can tell, we've had the thin secular view for over 200 years in the world, and our environmental crisis is only deepening. 
A third reason I think it's problematic is that it induces us to think about nature's value as only being instrumental. If matter is all that there is, then I might as well do whatever I want to do with it. And it only really exists to be used, instrumental, to be used by me or by humanity for its own ends. And I have to say, it's this very thought that's really driving the whole environmental crisis to begin with, that it's just stuff that we can use and it's only here for our benefit. So, so, so before we pat ourselves on the back for being in church today, let me just also say that in addition to the secular version uh, of the thin view, there's a religious version of the thin view. And it kind of goes like this, and I know I'm simplifying, but we say that the spiritual world is really all that matters. You know, God is immaterial and the soul is spiritual and heaven is some immaterial place in another dimension. And so the, the physical world doesn't really matter. We're after all spiritual beings. We have a deep spiritual problem and we need a spiritual solution. In fact, this kind of goes on. It's, these are corollaries of this. We don't really need our bodies because after all, we're going to another place. We're going to a better place called heaven. And everybody knows you don't need a body there because it's uh, in the clouds with uh, harps. I guess they're immaterial as well. If you had a body, there's no floor. You'd fall right through the, uh, the ground, to the ground or something. I don't know. Maybe there isn't a ground at that phase. It's all spiritual. This is what we think. But here's the problem with that. I mean... If God will one day take this physical world and crumple it up and throw it into the trash heap of time, if God will one day take this world, smash it against his forehead, burp and throw it out the window, why would I do anything different? Why, why not just consume and trash? Well, actually, it's, this is way too thin a view. It is religious, it is spiritual, but it's not at all biblical. And I want to show you just one example of how we misread the Bible around things like this. Would you please turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Now we'll go all the way to the end of the Bible. This is almost at the very end. If you hit Revelation, go back a couple of clicks. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. On the Pew Bible, it's page 988. And that's cheating, but that's how I find it. Um, page 10. <clears throat> I mean, it's part, uh, verse 10. I want to read this in the New Revised Standard Version. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will be dissolved with fire. And the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Now look at that last part there and I want to read for you. The King James says this, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Burned up. Now you might notice a little footnote there. Mine has a footnote and tells me on the bottom of the page. It says other ancient authorities read will be burned up. Let me tell you what's going on. In 1611, King James and his translators did not have access to the oldest and best Greek manuscripts. They did a wonderful job with the translation, but they had a very small set of manuscripts at their disposal. Since then, because of lots of great archaeological work that has been done, we have massive troves of Greek uh, manuscripts, and we know that the word that Peter uses there was not the word for burned up. It was the word uh, for discovery. It's actually related to the, to the English word eureka. Uh, it means uh, that it, something will be disclosed or discovered, and that's why you see what we have here for the New Revised Standard Version. But the problem is, if you read this, you get a very thin theology that grows, oh, the earth's going to be burned up. 
just check and look at the context. Let your eye go up and down that page and notice that, that Peter is writing, uh, he's making an argument, and he's using the Noah and the flood as an example. And if you think of this then in context, what happened with the flood? It didn't destroy the earth. It, 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 it cleansed it from evil and injustice, and it actually renewed it. If you read the Noah story, it's actually a second creation story. So Jesus, he, he, he has a thick view of life. And this is what I love about Jesus. Just think about the things that you know Jesus said. Consider the lilies of the field, he would say. Look at the birds of the air, he would say. God so clothes the grass of the field. He says, the stones will cry out. He says, not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father. See, Jesus has a thick view. He's talking about physical and spiritual. He's talking about body and soul, heaven and earth. In Jesus' mind, here's the core environmental problem. That the environment lacks peace or shalom. At the beginning, God creates the world and it is good and it has shalom, peace. God blesses it. And there we see right relationship, peace with God, peace with other human beings and peace with the natural world. But then sin enters and sin disrupts this peace. It ruptures it. And now we have an adversarial relationship, a, a triple alienation, alienation with God, alienation with each other, alienation with the natural world. This is the story of the Bible and this is what Jesus himself would have believed. And the problem with that is from there, we have this radically anthropocentric view of the world. That is, that the world revolves around us. Remember back to that instrumental idea, that it's all just for us. And that's the way history seems to run. And with that, we exploit, we damage, we uh, uh, consume the resources of the environment for our own purposes. It all revolves around us. And it, this drives levels of greed and imperialism and consumerism and environmental mismanagement. Believe it or not, this is the story that the Bible tells. We think this is kind of a modern narrative in some ways. It's not. Just a, a few texts for this. In creation, we read the Lord saying, cursed is the ground because of you to human beings. In Exodus, we read that, that under the Canaanites, quote, the land became defiled and the land vomited out its inhabitants. It was available for the Israelites because the Canaanites had defiled the land and the land rejected them and sent them out. And by the way, the text also says, Israel, when you turn from your God and defile the land also, you will also be vomited out. So that brings us to the exile. A couple quotes. Hosea says this, there's no faithfulness. There's no love. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. Notice what he says. Because of this, the land dries up or mourns. And all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. And Isaiah adds, the earth lies polluted under its inhabitants. So the Old Testament tells us this story. And then when we come to the New Testament, it's the same thing. St. Paul, for example, writes that the creation was subjected to futility when sin came in. And the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains. Not just people, the whole creation groaning in labor pains. And then here comes Jesus telling us that God loves it. God loves all of it. For God so loved the world. God loved the whole world. Meadows hidden in mountains. 
fish that no human eye ever gets to see in the dark depths of the ocean, galaxies uh, and, and the subatomic particles. God loves us. These things bring delight to God. He loves them. By the way, this is what makes uh, its value intrinsic. Not instrumental, but intrinsic. It exists simply because, and it's valuable simply because God loves it. It's to be used for God's purposes, to bring delight to its creator. Jesus says this, God so loved the world. Jesus also says, kingdom of heaven is coming. Kingdom of heaven is near. Notice the direction of that. It's not so much that we're going to heaven. It's that heaven is coming down. This is the teaching of Jesus. It's coming among us, and he himself brings it into our midst. We're not going there in some disembodied state. We're acclimating to the new culture that's coming. John sees a, a vision Jesus gives him, Revelation 21, 22, of a new Jerusalem that's coming down from heaven, and it actually has streets and rivers and trees. Jesus is the one who says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the one who says, I will make all things new. God in Jesus Christ is active, acting decisively so that he can restore peace. Remember, Jesus says, my peace I give you. He's talking about shalom. This is why reconciliation is at the heart of our mission because Jesus addresses this triple alienation with God, with each other, and with the natural world. He brings peace, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, he says. Oh my gosh, see how very thick Jesus' view of the world is. See how very thick the gospel is. Turn one last time to, uh, to, uh, back to Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, Philippians, Colossians. God eats popcorns, how you find that. It's page 956. Uh, if you get the gospels, go to the right, a few clicks, and you'll cut Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Look at how thick the gospel is here. It's worth noticing this. Verse 15, see what it tells us about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God so loved the world that he decided to become a part of it. The creator is the firstborn of creation. He's born into creation. I mean, that, if that doesn't bend your mind, you're not seeing the words. And then look at the next verse. It goes on. For in him all things, now not just human things or spiritual things, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or powers, all things have been created. How? Through him. Why? For him. This is the Christocentric view of the world, not instrumental. This is the value of the natural world. It all revolves around Jesus. And then verse 20. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. There's reconciliation, whether on earth or in heaven, by making Peace through the blood of his cross. Now we see that alienation has been reversed by the single act of God in Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood. This is the triple alienation that allows us now as human beings to have the capacity to rule in the way that God would have us rule inside of the cosmos, to serve and to care, to cultivate and protect and then finally, verse 23, just jump down a little bit. And you see, Paul says, the gospel that you heard has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Uh, literally all creation under heaven. I mean, this is the gospel for animals, for cattle, for ants, for bacteria. 
Jesus is Lord over all. This is good news in Jesus Christ for our planet. And I want you to know, this is not some new fad, some new crunchy trend that we've just woken up to in the last 30 years. This is the good news of Jesus in the Bible, 2,000 years plus. And just to help you see that, uh, let me quote from an old historian. 100 years ago, a theologian, Edward Thurneson, wrote this. The world into which we shall enter in the parousia of Jesus Christ, that's when Jesus returns, The world into which we shall enter in the parousia of Jesus Christ is not another world. It's this world, this heaven, this earth. Both, however, passed away and renewed. It is these forests, these fields, these cities, these streets, these people that will be the scene of redemption. At present, they are battlefields full of the strife and sorrow of the not yet accomplished consummation. Then they will be fields of victory. Fields of harvest, where out of the seed that was sown with tears, the everlasting sheaves will be reaped and brought home. Oh, what a beautiful picture that is of our future. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Someday it's going to happen. This is real, this is our future. This is not an invitation to sit back. This is an invitation, and let God just do it all. This is an invitation to go for it, to get up and go for a world that actually has peace in it, that has shalom in it, a world of joy and celebration. This is an invitation to engage in a a kind of environmental justice that isn't just about some nostalgia for a paradise lost. This is one that is drawing us into a new future, an inevitable future, a beautiful future. This is an environmental justice that is rooted in no less than the very mission of God. Did you read about Yvonne Chouinard last week giving away Patagonia, the company? He gave it away. Two weeks ago, he was a billionaire. Now he's just like you and me. That's incredible. I mean, maybe you're a billionaire. I'm not. I gave away my billions before I earned them. And many of you did as well. But I I love that he's giving it, the company, to the environment. Did you read about the Queen's horseman who had decided that he has a different technique of training horses. He's not going to be the master of the horse, but just a member of the herd. And when the queen mother saw this, she burst into tears. It was so beautiful to see a man and nature relating so harmoniously. I mean, this is our future. Now, what about you? I mean, maybe you're not rich. Maybe you don't own horses. Maybe you're not going to be in the newspaper. But there's so much that you and I can do. And I know many of you are already doing it. You're already washing your your Ziploc bags and so forth. But what I want to do is I want to encourage you to engage with this with joy to capture the spirit of celebration that Isaiah is bringing, uh, that God is bringing through Isaiah. There's a lot that we can do from uh, taking walks, uh, uh, writing our senators or congresspeople. But the first thing that we have to do is to do exactly what Isaiah was asking Israel to do. And if you just look a few verses up from Isaiah 55, 12, you see the invitation. Seek the Lord, Isaiah writes, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Oh, let the wicked forsake their way 
and let the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord. I love this. The Lord is calling those of us who know that we're wicked or unrighteous. And he's saying, I'm talking to you. Return to me. Seek me. I've come for you. I'm speaking to you. Isaiah says that he may have mercy on them. Come to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And that is a great promise. And that's probably the greatest of all the promises. It makes the environmental promise a secondary promise. It's God's pardon for our wicked ways. I forgive you. Maybe you're here just to take those words in today. I forgive you. This is the promise of the blood of the cross, as Paul wrote about in Colossians. We'll talk more about that next week. But for now, let us seek the Lord, as Isaiah urges. Maybe you haven't cared for and protected the creation. Maybe you haven't cared for and protected your own life as a creature. So seek the Lord. He will abundantly pardon. If you've never received God's pardon for your sin, your own personal sin, tell him today you're ready. Let this be the day that you say, I hear your invitation and I want to come. You can come speak to our prayer team after the service down front. You can come uh, in our chat and speak to the prayer team that way. Or after the fact, you can come to upc.org Jesus. And I just want to say, with Jesus, there's still challenges. But the challenges look so different. Right? There isn't the guilt. There isn't the fear. There isn't the debilitating dread. You don't have to avoid the news just to try to maintain your sanity, your mental health. Right? You know what I'm saying? With Jesus, you're not alone. We have this great promise. And I want to say, someday this is going to happen. If you believe any of Jesus, believe it all. Someday this is going to happen. Jesus will return. And as Thurnison says, battlefields will be turned into wheat fields. Headstones into housing. Bodies will be whole. And what was once deformed or diseased will be strong and fit. Young and old. Predator and prey will play and laugh together and roll in the dewy grass. There'll be ice on the poles and glaciers in the mountains. There'll be a warm sea breeze on our cheeks at the beach. There will be clean air and clear skies. There'll be the music of long lost birds on the air. And they'll dance. Exotic wildlife will return to dance in lively forests. For all I know, maybe even dinosaurs. So be careful of your step. They'll drink in the cities straight from the banks of urban rivers. There'll be food for all, a feast in every garden from north to south and east to west. And everything lost or poisoned or burned or drowned will be restored. I think the word is resurrected, resurrected by Jesus. All because millennia ago, God made this great and very precious promise. The mountains and the hills will, before you, shall burst into song, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we bow our heads before one who is just worthy of praise, who is the, who is the great artist of creation. What a beautiful world this is. Lord, we receive your pardon for the things that we've turned it into and it hasn't been beautiful, but we're so encouraged by this promise. You've given us a little window, a keyhole into an inevitable future that is the result of nothing and no one but your son, Jesus Christ. Before him we bow today. It is he we worship. 
It is him whom we love. Our hearts are full of him. We pray that you'll help us to receive fully the reconciliation that he has come to give and that we'll be people who will hold out hope uh, to our neighbors. Uh, Hope for a world in which shalom, peace, is the overall reality. We pray in Christ's name, amen.